Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. This past Sunday at Storyline's Gathering, our children sung Christmas carols. In addition, we continued our look at different aspects of the life of faith. The band performed songs by Roxette, David Ramirez, and Echo Smith. Let's have a listen. Fun it is to 
Good job, guys. Good job. Give me five. Good. You, you did it. You did not. No. Good job. Give me five. Yeah, so good. So good. Yes. Oh, yeah, I love the wave with the bell. That's nice. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. Thanks. Oh, I don't know where he gets that from, Mike. It's, I, I, I struggle to get Mike Cook off stage, too. Now Soren's stealing the show. Hey, good morning, Storyline. Merry Christmas. I have to follow that now somehow. My goodness. This is always one of my favorite mornings of the year. The kids sing. It's always incredible. And every time, though, I, I think about this one particular year, when Lexi Schultz, God bless her if you know her, she must have been about four or five years old. And she is never one to shy away from the spotlight. This was her <laughs> during the entire performance. So the kids are coming off stage like this, and I'm giving them high fives. She gets up to me, stops, looks at me, throws out her arms and goes, we were amazing. <laughs> And they were. She was so right. That's so great. Now, look, I think we can all agree that the magic of Christmas is children. It really is. It's so fun. And I always, my favorite part is I always love to read these letters to Santa. And I just think it's so cool that even in this day and age, with all this technology and all the change that's coming, kids are still writing letters to Santa to tell them what they want. They might look a little different, okay? <laughs> Think about that. Not a truck, not, uh, you know, a teddy bear. They're writing the link down. That's hilarious. Oh, my goodness. But the best thing ever when it comes to Christmas, in my opinion, is when the youngest children 
start to get that it's about more than just getting. And they start themselves to get into the spirit of Christmas giving. The video playing shows a compilation of children showcasing the most endearing moments. Just as the emotions are stirring, at the end of the video, a child grabs a cup and hilariously scoops water out of a toilet bowl to drink. Yummy. That is spectacular. That is my official favorite Christmas video now. I love it so kind. Thank you, thank you for the water. Hey, so a couple weeks ago, Paul started us off um, in a new series that we're just calling uh, The Life of Faith. And we're looking at different aspects of the life of faith. Like what are some components, what are some elements that need to be a part of our life if we are going to live a life of faith in the grace of God? Last week we looked at community, but Paul started us off two weeks ago by asking this question, what does God want? Now, this time of year, we're all about that question, right? Like, what do I want? What do you want for Christmas? We're asking that all the time. But asking, what does God want? It's like, I think that's a question that we don't really think about that much. At least I know that I don't. So I thought that in the spirit of Christmas, we'd explore that question a little bit. What does God want? And what does that have to do with the life of faith? How do those two things connect? So that's what we're going to look at for a little while this morning. I was reading an anthropologist years ago, actually, and he said something that really surprised me. He was talking about all of the ways that human beings have developed through the millennia, really. And he said that the most important discovery in human history is, I want you to think about that. Now, what could it be? Fire? How about the wheel? I would vote for ice cream. Now, all of those are really good guesses, and they'd all be wrong. His answer, I think, is just ingenious, and I think it's probably right. According to this anthropologist, the most important discovery that human beings have ever made is ignorance. It's when human beings became aware that we don't know all that we need to know, and that what we don't know, like, where did that water come from? It can hurt us. It can hurt us. So it was ironically only after human beings discovered our own ignorance that we began to flourish as a species. Now, the flip side of that discovery comes with some bad news. You see, to find out that you might be ignorant is another way of saying you could be arrogant. And if if ignorance is a mixed bag because now you know something, and that's good, But what you know is that you don't know, and that's bad. Arrogance is just bad news because it assumes that we know something that we really don't or something that we think is true isn't. So one way to look at this question of what does God want is to kind of frame it around this tension between human ignorance and human arrogance. And especially, I think, in the lives and the characters of the people that we find in the Bible who are trying to live the life of faith. 
So this morning we're going to look at one such person. How, he would have been known um, in his day in the Aramaic language that he spoke most of the time. His name would have been pronounced Kepha. Kepha. Now as a Jew, his given name was Simon. But history knows him by the name that Jesus gave him, Peter. Very famous person in the history of Christianity. Now, Peter was one of the first followers of Jesus. He was actually the first person to publicly identify Jesus as the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, the coming King, the the Son of God. After that, he denied even knowing Jesus three times. Then Jesus forgave him. Not long after that, Peter is actually reprimanded publicly by another apostle, the Apostle Paul, for kind of being a little bit racist. In other words, Peter's story, his life of faith, if you will, is not this straight, dark line from zero to hero. It is not just this straight, dark line from ignorance through arrogance into this life of faith in the grace of God. And it's up and down. It's all over the place. In fact, one of the major themes that Jesus is helping Peter to see is that arrogance, with all of its promises of power and poise, calm and control, actually leaves us just the opposite. Arrogance, in fact, has been called the seedbed of anxiety. I know that seems, might seem a little bit counterintuitive, but I think it's true. And just like the last thing an addict needs is the only thing he wants, anxiety craves what created it in the first place, which is answers and certainty. The promise of self-sufficiency, security, and control that we so often come with knowing and knowing that we're sure and certain, knowing what to do in any situation. Now, I'm not suggesting that all anxiety is caused by arrogance. Often, the causes of anxiety are very complicated. They're totally out of our control. As you know, if you've been here at all for any amount of time, I'm a big advocate of therapy and counseling. I have a therapist myself. But what I'd like for us to consider is that on some level, Some of the anxiety that we all may struggle with from time to time does not surprisingly come from what we don't know or ignorance. It actually grows out of what we think we do know, our arrogance. Because arrogance leads us to a life where we're consistently insisting that life has to go a certain way. They have to be a certain way. Our kids have to achieve certain things. Our country has to enact certain laws and policies. Our career has to take a certain path. Our boss has to treat us a certain way. Our spouse has to, and on and on and on it goes. It's actually a very dangerous way to live. Neurologist Robert Burton put it this way. To create a feeling of certainty, the brain actually has to filter out more information than it processes which means the more certain we feel, the more likely we are to oversimplify things or just be plain wrong. Now, arrogance has an appeal, 
I think we all get it. And I'm not talking about the arrogance that's just like openly arrogant, like strutting its stuff. That's one thing. I'm talking about this inner certainty, this inner closed-mindedness, this inner, I, I know what I need to know. And that has an appeal. I get it. It's a tempting way to live. It's also very, very dangerous. I watched a great miniseries several years ago. I think it was on Netflix. I'm not sure. But it's called Waco. And it was about the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas in the early 90s. It was led by a man named David Koresh. Now, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well. Okay? But as I was watching it, I kept asking how in the world do these cult leaders like gain such a following? I was not looking for tips. I was just wondering the question, okay? <laughs> and then it hit me. Then it hit me. They're kind of like drug dealers, but instead of pushing drugs, they're pushing answers. Like easy, straightforward answers. They're getting their followers hooked on, really, a kind of arrogance, like and, and the false promises that come with the security, control, and power, the prestige of being the ones who know. Like the people who get it, who are prepared, who understand all of life. We, we get it, they don't. We're in, they're out. There is an, it's an intoxicating allure that comes with that and how it works and, and when you know something for certain that other people don't and, and how to avoid everything hard, bad, painful, and unpleasant in life because of it. C.S. Lewis had a very interesting way of describing this. He called it the attraction of the inner ring. It's one of my favorite essays by him and, and it's in this essay with that same title. He sums up, I think, what Many girls who tend to be a little bit more aware of their surroundings, many girls learn this in middle school, and even some boys mature enough to notice, kind of, in high school, that um, the, there is a lure, there is an inner ring, and there is a lure to it, to the in crowd, the cool kids, that it's important to know the answer to what, what to do what to wear, what to listen to, what to say, what is cool and what is not, and to make very sure that you're on the right side of that line at all times. Now, when you're on the right side of that line, it can protect you. You, you feel safer. The anxiety level goes down right up until you find yourself on the other side of that line. And then it devours you. You see, the inner ring promises to alleviate the anxiety of not knowing, of not being sure, of being left out and being left behind. But it comes at this great cost that we exclude everyone who doesn't get it. And sooner or later, that's going to be us. As Lewis put it, of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is the most skillful in making a man who is not yet very bad do very bad things. Man, I think that's true. 
Now, tragically, it isn't just teenagers who wield this kind of arrogance. I think we see it most prevalently in our culture, in religion and in politics. Maybe the two places where these rings, the walls of these inner rings are the highest, the steepest, the thickest. Religion should be a force that brings us together in compassion and in comfort. Politics should be the place where people from all walks of life come together to try to build a consensus or at very least a compromise around the complex challenges of living together. But way too often, politics and religion take like the low, easy, arrogant road of trafficking in answers. Just trafficking in easy answers. And according to them, the only, only evil or stupid people could ever disagree with the way that, you know, our little inner ring sees things. Now, that was very much the setting uh, in the time of Jesus, believe it or not. I know we want to think that it was this really lovely time way back in the past, but it wasn't. It was very much the setting. There was a bunch of inner rings, a bunch of division in the time of Jesus, maybe even more so than in our day, if you can believe that. And as a young man, Peter had already been shamed and excluded by both of the inner rings of his day of politics and religion. Both had made it clear, you don't belong. You're out. You're on the other side of the wall. You're on the other side of the line. So all that he had left, the only part of his life where he had any hope of being in, of being in the inner ring, was in his profession. Peter was a fisherman. He actually met Jesus while fishing. In fact, Jesus' first words to Peter were, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And for about three years, that's exactly what Peter does. He joins Jesus on his mission to tear down the walls of every inner ring they could find and to bring people together, together, not around some like secret knowledge or some political plan or some specific religion or easy answers, but the wide open love and never ending grace of God. Yet, During those three years, if we just isolate Peter and just look at his interactions with Jesus, we see time and time again that every time Peter really listens, when he really stops and he really listens to Jesus, we see this tension in him to admit his ignorance or cling to his arrogance. And this is why I love the Bible. It's just so real. Peter is so deeply flawed. And and he's just this very real dude. And and in a sense, Peter is, and in that sense, Peter's like a stand-in, I think, for all of us. In fact, one of my favorite Peter stories is the time that he identifies Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus turns to him and says, you're right. And now I'm actually going to change your name from Simon to Peter. The rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. I almost can see Peter going, like, look at me. Finally made it. Inner ring. Cool kid. Right? It's really a very famous story. But what's much less well known is what happens in the next paragraph. 
It's absolutely stunning. Jesus goes on from identifying Peter. Hey, you're not Simon. You're Peter. You're the rock. Jesus goes straight from that into describing to his followers that, hey, look, things are going to get really difficult from here on out. In fact, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be killed. And Peter's arrogance kind of rises up. His need for certainty and safety and control. He can't take it. And in this anxious outburst, he tells Jesus, no, that cannot happen, Jesus. We won't let it. And so the very next thing that Jesus says to Peter, the rock, is this. Get behind me, Satan. That's a 180, in case you're wondering. <laughs> that's, that's, that's going from one side of the line to the other. So is he in the inner ring or is he out? Does he have reason to be arrogant Or is he ignorant? And the truth is, Peter the rock is caught yet again in a very hard place. Between a rock and a heart Whether I like it or not, I'm digging my grave Friends ask me why I choose to stay Between a rock and a hard place I ain't getting younger now I'm fading like the setting sun I ain't strong like I was when I was young But for all the things I've lost There are a few I've gained Most came between a rock and a hard place Maybe I want to stare death in the face Pound my chest and scream, I ain't afraid Truth is I'm beaten down and broken from all the weight Pushing me to trade my guilt for grace Cause I ain't getting younger now I'm fading like the setting sun I ain't strong like I was when I was young But for all the things I've lost There are a few I've gained Most came between a rock and a hard place In a hard place In a hard place In a hard place So when you lay me down to rest in Set my tombstone flat on top of my grave 
So forever my body will lay between a rock and a hard place. Cause I ain't getting younger now. Oh, I'm fading like the setting sun. I ain't strong like I was when I was young. But for all the things I've lost, there are a few I've gained. Most came between a rock and a hard place. Most came between a rock and a hard place. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Wes. Ooh, it's one of my favorite songs. I love it. Isn't that true? If we've lived long enough, I think we know that. That we learn and grow so much when we are caught in this tension between a rock and a hard place. Did you know that long before COVID-19 that public health officials had been already talking about two pandemics sweeping actually all of the Western world? And those pandemics were loneliness and anxiety. W.H. Auden was a famous poet, and he wrote a poem not long after World War II entitled The Age of Anxiety, because he was already noticing it then. And, and all the experts agree that it has been a growing problem in our society since about that time. The definition of anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about something with an uncertain outcome. <laughs> now, who cannot relate to that, right? Like, that could be everyone's every day right there. And we'll do most, almost anything to escape this. And the modern world is promising to help us. But it's really interesting to note that it was only with the advent of the industrialized world around the time of World War II and, and just after. And it's automated, refrigerated, urbanized, electrified conveniences and the power, control, and security that all of that seemingly gave us over life that we started to see anxiety grow. And it's only been in our brand new click, compare, and consume reality this internet age that we live in, that anxiety has spiked into a pandemic. It is the illusion of control that makes arrogance look so enticing. I know all I need to know. I know all I need to know. It feels like the antidote to anxiety, right? It feels like the antidote. When we believe that we know what we do, what to do all the time and in every situation, when we have all the, our answers to the question, what, it gives us this sense of security. I can see the future. I can stand up against whatever may come. It means I'm on the right side. I'm on the good side. I'm in the inner ring. Politics promises that. Religion promises that. And it's so tempting just to run to it headlong. And Peter's story is one where Jesus exposes this, not only as an illusion, but actually a disease, an addiction, really, that sucks the life out of us. 
After Jesus is crucified and resurrected, he appears to his disciples on many occasions. And one was an early morning after Peter and a few others had been out all night fishing. And the Bible says that they caught nothing. So they were out all night, come back, boats empty. And they were on their way into shore as dawn broke. And Jesus shows up on the beach and yells out to them from the beach, hey, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Now keep in mind, Peter couldn't tell who it was that was yelling at at him. There's just this man on shore. So this request was as stupid as it was insulting. Like, who is this guy? Peter was a professional fisherman, for goodness sakes. He knew what he was doing. He was in the inner ring. He knew the answers. He knew what to do. And now some stranger was telling him to fish on the other side of the boat. And here again, Peter is faced with this this same old struggle. Do I know everything I need to know? Do I know everything I need to know? Will I be arrogant about this? Or is it possible I'm ignorant? That there is something that I don't know that I don't know. And so I'm not sure if it was all that he had seen living with Jesus for the past three years or what, but Peter does something really quite amazing. The rock listens. He listens. And he casts his net on the other side of the boat. And the Bible says that the net was so full of fish that it almost sunk the boat when they hauled it in. See, Jesus is challenging Peter's arrogance. And he isn't doing that because it bothers Jesus. He's doing that because it's robbing Peter of a flourishing life. Jesus enters into Peter's inner ring, the place where Peter is in control, knows what he's doing, knows what he wants and how to get it, and suggests, maybe there's something you don't know. Maybe there's another way. One that won't keep you up all night, left with the fruit of living by your own devices, which is nets full of nothing but anxiety. And this is really fascinating to see when we really delve into this encounter between Jesus and Peter. While Jesus is pushing Peter away from this hard place of arrogance, notice he isn't pushing him up into this rock of ignorance. Maybe those aren't the only two choices. Maybe there's space between those two places. Maybe something else, something beautiful and brilliant is taking place here between this rock and this hard place. You know, for, it's been over a century now that psychologists and educators have actually know, known that human beings grow best, most, when we go just beyond what we already think we know. Peter is learning a critical aspect of the life of faith here. And that is that it's not so much about what he believes or how much he believes, but who he believes in. And for a change, in this situation, it wasn't first and foremost only what he thought he knew. In this scene, Peter is discovering the link between arrogance and anxiety. 
I know what's best. I have the answers. It's got to go this way. If it doesn't, life's going to fall apart. When we think we know all that we need to know, it comes with this enticing promise of control. But the cost is everything is now on, all, on us all the time. And life has to go a certain way or we are doomed. Now, many commentators actually believe that Peter was fishing at night because he was probably broke, maybe even in debt, and he was trying to cheat on his taxes by working off the books, sneaking these fish in that he would catch at night so the Romans wouldn't charge him. In other words, Peter's anxious. And he's out that night on this fishing trip. It's like taking a hit of arrogance on this drug of arrogance. It's like him going, I know what to do. I can fix this. I know all I need to know. And Jesus is trying to break that addiction by rooting it out. Think about this. Look, Jesus could have filled Peter's net Peter's way. Why ask Peter, who's been fishing all night, to cast his nets on the other side? Have you ever noticed in the storyline logo that the eye is upside down? Now, I don't know whose idea that was. I wish it was mine. It wasn't. But I like it. What does it mean? To me, here's what it means to me. It's about how the life of faith is flipping the point of life on its head. Making our story about something bigger than just I. Someone once suggested to me, we were talking about this, and they said, it's like we're saying the point of life isn't found by what we know in our head but how we live with our feet, how we live and why, and I like that too. So cool. Maybe Jesus is showing us here that in the life of faith, we get to drop the I from the middle of our story. What I think I know the way things have to go. Maybe the life of faith is not about knowing what to do, but why. And that changes everything. So you're a musical director. Yes, cool. sir. All right, so um, let, me get a couple, let me get a couple bars of like uh, Amazing Grace. Can you do the first part of that? Me, go ahead. Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. All right, all right. Uh, now, once you give me the version, is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Yeah.
here's what I want you to catch. The first time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time, he knew why he was doing it. Great. So good. Maybe this is what God wants. He wants our life to flourish. And that it's not so much about what to do and what we know and what we don't know, but why we're doing whatever it is that we're doing. And that begins with discovering our ignorance, acknowledging our arrogance, and listening. Listening and casting our nets, what we're looking for, what we're fishing for in our life onto his side of the boat. In athletics, there's a name for this, actually. It's called playing or being in the zone. And where every kick, where every hit, where every shot just is like effortless and it just goes exactly where you want it to go and things are just clicking. It happens in other areas of life as well. For instance, I see my wife in the zone at the Nordstrom Rack shoe department. It's like, it's like, get out of the way. It's like her feet aren't touching the floor. It's unbelievable. My God, that credit card starts to heat up in her pocket. It's amazing. So... Another name for it is the state of optimal performance. And here's the thing about it. It has nothing to do with what we know. Every athlete will tell you that. It has nothing to do with our arrogance, but it isn't the opposite either. It isn't ignorance. It's not like blind faith. Do you you know how the zone was actually discovered? This is a fascinating story. It was a Russian psychologist. His name was Lev Vygotsky. And he first discovered what we now call the zone by watching babies. Specifically, in how moms teach their babies the most complex skill any human being will ever learn, which is how to communicate, how to speak. Here's what Vygotsky found. He found that moms always speak to their children just beyond their ability to understand. Now, it goes without saying that moms are always speaking way beyond what their husbands can understand. But that is, that is another talk for another day, okay? This is speaking of, this is Mike Cook's wife, Dylan, okay? And their daughter, Zola. I know, just lovely. Now, Dylan is very, very smart. But I can promise you this, she has no idea how she's teaching Zola to talk. In other words, she isn't arrogant about it, but she isn't ignorant either. She knows why this very important, she knows why this is a very important and a critical role that she has in teaching Zola how to communicate. And like all moms, what Dylan is doing is she's using words and ideas that Zola can really only comprehend about 85% of. By keeping that 15% of their communication just beyond Zola's ability to grasp, Dylan has Zola in what Vygotsky called the zone of proximal development. Sports psychologists and athletes have just shortened it now to the zone. I'm in the zone. And it's the path to human flourishing. This is the beauty and the brilliance and the genius of Jesus. 
he is always doing this with us. Notice he approaches Peter on Peter's terms. Peter's place. It's a boat. It's a lake where Peter feels accomplished and comfortable. In other words, 85% of this scene makes sense to Peter. He's on a boat. He's doing what he knows how to do, fish. But then Jesus does it. He invites Peter into the zone of optimal human performance, of proximal development, by pushing Peter past what he already knows, where Peter has to let go of his arrogance and pride and the anxiety that comes with it And yet Jesus isn't pushing him into ignorance. Something else is going on here. Cast your nets on my side. That's the invitation. Cast your nets, your life, your wants, your hopes, your dreams, what it is that makes your heart beat the fastest, what you're after, but on my side, for my why. Living like this is somewhere between what we know and what we don't know, between arrogance and ignorance. Jesus is linking what to do with why we do it. And this is a critical aspect of the life of faith, living by faith in the grace of God, in the zone of proximal human development. It is flipping the point of our story from me and what I know to God and who he is and why he is inviting us to live a life of love. Think about this. Zola has no idea how she's learning to talk. And Dylan has no idea how she's teaching her. Imagine the anxiety that they would both feel if this was all up to them. And what they know. And what they can accomplish. But that isn't what's happening. Both Dylan and Zola are moving forward. Like almost they're in the zone of faith. This trust that there is a gracious force at work that is both beyond them and yet within them. And an amazing thing happens in this zone of faith. Anxiety melts away. It's the difference between learning a second language and learning your native tongue. Life by our own devices. Life limited by what we think we know is like learning a second language. And if you've ever tried that, it's horrible. I, terrible. It's tedious. It's all kinds of tests, all kinds of failure. But the life of faith, what if that's our native language? What if that's our native tongue? I think this is what Jesus is inviting us into when he says, cast your nets on my side. This isn't an order, it's an opportunity. Recognize our ignorance, confess our arrogance. It's not a challenge, it's a chance to live by faith in the grace of God. Later in his life, Peter uses a very interesting phrase to encourage followers of Jesus. He says this, cast all your anxieties on God. You have to believe he was thinking of this moment in his life when he listened 
to the invitation of grace. I know there's something in the wake of your smile I get that notion from the look in your eyes You build love, but that love falls apart Little piece of heaven turns to dark Listen to your heart when he's calling for you listen to your heart there's nothing else you can do i don't know where you're going and i don't know why listen to your heart before you tell him Sometimes you wonder if this fight is worthwhile The precious moments are all lost in the tide Yeah, they're swept away Nothing is what it seems Feeling I belonging to your dreams Listen to your heart when he's calling for you, listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do. I don't know where you're going, and I don't know why. Listen to your heart before you tell him goodbye. Thank you, thank you. So before Peter was Peter, which again means the rock, his name was Simon. And I looked up what that means and I, I almost couldn't believe it. Are you ready for this? This blew me away. Simon means to listen. And it is a critical aspect of the life of faith. To listen for the voice of God, inviting us to cast our nets, our hopes, 
our fears, our anxieties on his side. This is what moves us from settling for a life limited by what we think we know and unleashes in us and through us the life lived in the zone of why we are doing it. And just maybe this is what God wants. Not from us, but for us this Christmas. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and this opportunity to be together. We thank you for children and the way that you shine so brightly through them at all times, but especially in this season. We thank you for coming to us and coming for us, what we're remembering and celebrating in the season of Christmas, and for inviting us to live by faith in your grace. Help us to see where we are limiting life because we think we know all that we need to know. Help us to listen to your voice in our hearts, inviting us to cast our nets on your side. As we leave this morning, help us to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, folks. Merry Christmas. See you next week. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.